Hi there, I'm Catalina Villegas. I'm the host of Rolly's Experts Explain Everything podcast. Rolly is the platform where journalists find experts for their stories. As a journalist myself, I love to find fascinating people on Rolly, experts with deep knowledge and insight that can answer all of the questions I've ever had about their field. So today we are chatting with Jake Johnston, a senior research associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. His new book out now is called Aid State, Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism, and the Battle to Control Haiti. Jake, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So Jake, lots going on in Haiti right now. Let's get to the basics. How did Haiti get to this kind of current state of chaos where gangs have really taken over large parts of the capital and the government seems largely incapable of, of fixing it? Yeah, so we can start with just sort of a, a brief overview of what really is going on in the ground today, right? Uh, so as you mentioned, armed groups are in control of significant portions of the capital. Violence and insecurity have skyrocketed over the last couple of years. Now, this has been a process that's been building for some time, but really uh, sort of took off to new heights after the 2021 assassination of President Jovenel Moise. And in the aftermath of that, a... Um, uh, and a, a leader came to power with the backing of the international community, uh, de facto Prime Minister Ariel Henry, and he has had virtual uh, monopoly on power for the last two plus years. Uh, and there's been this sort of ongoing debate, discussion over how to move forward and how to address these problems. Uh, but obviously, thus far, you know, the authorities haven't haven't done much of anything to control the situation. In fact, it is. Um... A very sad situation leading to a lot of migration and a lot of folks leaving Haiti because of that. So tell us a little bit uh, about the background of that. Specifically, you mentioned um, the acting prime minister of Haiti. There's a lot of people that are actually opposed to that de facto um, prime minister, Ariel Henry. Can you tell us why? Yeah, I think this really comes down to two issues. One is how he got to that position of power in the first place. And then the second is what he's done with that power since he's had it. Right. So again, as I mentioned, you know, he came to office in the aftermath of the assassination of the late president, Jovenel Moise. Uh, now, there was some question. He had been nominated to the position just before the assassination, but hadn't officially taken office or formed a cabinet or anything like this. And so there was some question for a period of weeks after the assassination. And that changed with a press release from the core group, and this core group in Haiti is composed of the major donor countries, the US, France, Canada, and multilateral organizations. Now, for the last 20 or so years, this entity's formed basically a, a de facto fourth branch of government in Haiti. They threw their weight behind Henri, and lo and behold, the next day, Henri became prime minister. So you have a big section of the population that sees this leader as a foreign-imposed leader on their country. And then I think crucially is what his record's been while he's actually had this power, right? There haven't been elections in Haiti for over six years. There is not a single elected official holding office across the country from the mayor level to the Senate, parliament, et cetera, right? And so you really have this consolidation of power with one individual. And yet over the last two plus years, you know, obviously, as we were discussing, the situation on the ground has gotten immensely worse, right? Violence is increasing. Uh, hunger is increasing, right? The the ability of the state to respond and what the population actually sees from their state, right, is, is basically total absence. 
And so in that context, of course, you know, he is the one that's taking the brunt of that eye. The situation has become such that we're seeing a lot of different countries. Kenya is one of them that has uh, proposed or that have, have thought about sending peacekeeping missions to um, to Haiti to try to bring some stability and to the country and some safety to those residents. But you know, I, the the latest news I believe is that Kenya's court blocked police deployment to Haiti, and uh, it seems like there's also a lot of opposition uh, within Haiti for foreign peacekeeping missions like that. Can you just give us a little bit of sense of why? Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take a pause here and jump way back into the history a little bit. I mean, I think, you know, we can talk about the current situation, but I think with Haiti and really like any place, right, you, you really need to understand some of the history behind this to understand what's happening today. Right. And when we're talking about history, we're talking about a country that was founded after a successful slave revolt, right? The only such case in world history, right? In 1804, Haiti became an independent nation, overthrowing the French colonizers and abolishing slavery, the first country in the world whose constitution abolished slavery, right? This is, uh, you know, a, a country, a people, right? That have been a beacon of hope and freedom for for the world population, right? That That changed world history. And in many ways, this is a country that's never been forgiven for that success by major world powers, right? And that has colored the relationship between Haiti and these significant world powers, the US, France, and others for centuries, right? So sort of fast forwarding up until more present day, right? This notion of outside forces coming in to try and stabilize Haiti or fix Haiti is not something new. This is something that we've seen time and time again. And you know, we don't need to go back two centuries to see the negative repercussions of that. The Haitians have lived with that in much more recent times. And so from 2004 to 2017, there were about 10,000 UN peacekeepers stationed in Haiti, uh, ostensibly to provide stability, to train the local police force, right, to do all of these things. And yet their greatest legacy is the introduction of a cholera epidemic that killed tens of thousands of Haitians and their steadfast refusal to take any responsibility for that, right? An absolute epidemic of sexual abuse and exploitation, again, with no accountability for the soldiers and for those responsible, and indiscriminate killings of civilians as they raid these poor communities that have been sort of both bastions of violence, but also bastions of opposition support and grassroots organizing, right? And so there's a whole history there wrapped up into this idea of foreigners coming in to stabilize the situation. And so I think, you know, one key question is, right, stability for whom, right? Who are they there to provide stability for? And I think the you know history shows that you know foreign powers are often intervening to provide stability for the political and economic elite and not for the masses of Haiti, right? And so when you look at the political context surrounding this current debate over this Kenya-led force, which is backed by the United States and and actually received UN Security Council authorization late last year. But many in Haiti see this as just a move to further prop up and entrench this illegitimate government that they hold responsible for so much of the ills in the country, right? And so you've got this real uh, uh, you know, dichotomy here where, yes, the situation is dire. People want help. They do want assistance. But you know, we have to make sure that that assistance uh, you know, is actually responsive to their needs. Oh, absolutely. Um, so then what do people in Haiti actually want to see instead of a foreign intervening force? How, how do we support them and help them um, at a time when obviously there's so much violence and so much need? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think this, you know, can go a few different directions. I mean, one, you know, we've been talking about this, uh, the role of de facto Prime Minister Ariel Henry and a sort of, you know, total control over the political space. Again, 
that is largely as a result of the intervention of foreign powers, including the United States, right? So I think first and foremost, I think you know, people are looking at the situation and seeing, you know, the insecurity is not divorced from the country's politics. These things are deeply intertwined, right? And so you can't address that insecurity situation without also going after the heart of the issue with, with the governance, right? And so I think first and foremost, Asians want to see a change in their government, right? They want to see something different, uh, you know, at the top because that's going to set the tone. And also because there is a local police force, right? There are resources, there are plenty of capable people, there are people who want to do good, who would love to do good, and who aren't given those resources to do so, right? So as an example, uh, you know, the United States has pledged $200 million in support of this Kenya-led force. They're already training Kenyans to, to deploy to Haiti. $200 million is equivalent to the entire annual budget of the Haitian National Police thousands of whom are leaving the force altogether because they can't even get paid, right? So how are we using this money? How are we building local capacity? How are we providing sustainable support and not just more band-aids, more money for international actors and disappointment for the Haitian people? Right. It sounds like maybe that money could possibly be better invested into the actual people in the community that, that needs that. Um, you write in your book, Aid State, that the U.S. and other foreign governments intervened in Haiti's 2011 elections. How does this connect to that current Haitian government's crisis of legitimacy that we've spoken of? And then, of course, the current chaos and violence. Yeah, sure thing. And so just to, again, to give a little background here and, and describe sort of what that intervention in the election was, right? Haiti suffered an absolutely devastating earthquake in 2010, where upwards of hundreds of thousands died, more than a million were displaced. Uh, and it also happened right before elections were supposed to take place. Now, instead of sort of uh, further delaying them or waiting until the conditions on the ground actually allowed for people to really participate, uh, donors, including the United States, pressured the government to hold elections as soon as possible. And they were predictably a total mess, right? Uh, huge parts of the electorate weren't even able to vote. Their names weren't on the lists. They were totally displaced. And so their voting center was perhaps miles away. Participation ended up being less or around 20%, while thousands and thousands of votes were never counted as violence disrupted the count all across the country. But for donors, right? The goal was stability. It, it wasn't democracy, right? And with billions of dollars of post-quake reconstruction money coming from these donors on the line, right? They just wanted to move forward. And it didn't really matter what that looked like. And so what ended, hap ended up happening was a team from the Organization of American States, a regional body uh, covering Latin America and the Caribbean, came to Haiti to analyze the vote. But without doing any statistical analysis or even doing a full recount of the actual votes, they recommended changing the results of the election and putting the third place candidate into the runoff election ahead of the government's chosen successor, right? Now, in order to get the government to agree to this, the United States actually threatened to withhold post-quake aid from the country if they didn't change the results of their election. They did, right? And this had huge ripple effects, right, as we go down. Now, the person who made it into the runoff due to this intervention and eventually became president was a man, Michel Martelly. Uh, you know, just a few months ago, the United Nations investigators released a report alleging that Martelly had financed and used armed gangs to try and 
further his political purposes while in office. He oversaw massive corruption scandals and the like. And so when we talk about what are the reasons for what's happening today, right? So many Haitians are saying, well, it was this government that you foisted upon us 10 years ago, and now we're, we're living with the results today, right? And so you can really, I think, sort of draw a straight line in, in many ways from that intervention to the sort of total political breakdown that we've seen uh, in the years since. And maybe draw really a straight line back to what you mentioned earlier, right, 220 years ago, um, the independence of, of Haiti from, from France. Um, talk to us a little bit about how that history um, colors the situation that we're seeing on the ground today, but also the way that uh, these foreign powers try to provide aid and assistance, but do it in a way that, as you mentioned, we're oftentimes forcing ourselves upon uh, what the Haitian community really wants. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think, you know, again, this history of foreign intervention, uh, of lack of sovereignty, right? It, it's not confined to the history books, right? It, it's something that's ongoing. Uh, we've talked about it with foreign support uh, and playing a deterministic role with the current, uh, you know, illegitimate government staying in power. Uh, with the 2011 electoral intervention, right? We've seen this over and over and over again. So again, it's not something that's confined to the past. It's something that continues. And I think you, you sort of also have to look, again, beyond the specific instances to what the long-term effects of that are, right? And so you have for a very long time, you've had basically an alliance between a very small local elite. Haiti is one of the most unequal countries in the world, right? Together with foreign powers that have basically conspired uh, to keep this state in this unsustainable position where it's really uh, excluding the majority of the population, right? And benefiting just the few, right? And in so many ways, right, that was always going to fail, right? That was never sustainable. Uh, a foreign imposed state that does not respond to the needs of the majority of the population was destined to fail. And, and I think in many ways, right, we're seeing the repercussions of that today. And in fact, um, this year uh, marks 20 years since Haiti's president Aristide was ousted from, or some say fled Haiti. Um, just another uh, example here of this intervention that we're talking about, because you uncovered more evidence in your book that what happened uh, was actually more of a coup d'etat with U.S. support. Talk to us a little bit about that evidence. Yeah, sure thing. I mean, I think, you know, with uh, as time's gone on, right, there's been more and more pieces that have come out, right? And so I think part of this is just sort of putting together the bigger picture, right? Looking at the aid cutoffs, the diplomatic pressure here, and putting all of those pieces together. But there are some specific new pieces of, of, of information in, in the book. And I think maybe the most, most relevant is uh, an interview with a former CIA analyst, uh, CIA analyst who was covering the region at the time. And so in the early 2000s, this group of uh, former military and police officers from Haiti, uh, they fled the country uh, facing arrest because of their plots to, to destabilize the government. And they took refuge in the Dominican Republic where they sort of built this network, collected arms, and then eventually came back into Haiti leading a sort of a deadly uh, protest march towards the capital with the goal of overthrowing the government. Now, there have long been allegations that there was U.S. support for this, this, uh, this group, but nothing concrete. But what this CIA analyst told me was, you know, he was monitoring the region. He saw this group receiving these large arms shipments in the Dominican Republic, and they had really good logistics, really good communications networks. You know, and his first instinct was, you know, this looks like a U.S. operation. 
And so we started asking around, trying to figure out what was really going on. And, and what, you know, the conclusion that he reached as a CIA analyst was this wasn't his agency that was actually supporting this group, but actually the State Department during the Bush administration, which was led by a number of individuals ostensibly responsible for maintaining relations with Haiti, but that were actually focused on trying to overthrow the government and were providing direct support to this band of paramilitaries from the Dominican Republic. And what he also notes, uh, you know, again, President Aristide, who was the president at the time, uh, facing all of these sort of external factors and armed groups, had brought in a, a team of U.S. private security contractors to provide security and asked for reinforcements. And that took State Department authorization. And the State Department said no and blocked that security firm from providing security reinforcements to the President Aristide. And within a short period of time, he was indeed uh, on a plane uh, into exile himself. And so again, you know, these are things that we've we've sort of suspected for a long time. But you know, as far as I know, it's the first time a, a U.S. government official has gone sort of on the record to say, you know, this is this is precisely what I saw from the inside. In fact, a lot of new information and details uncovered in your new book. Um, we encourage everyone to check it out. It's called Aid State. Um, tell us more about uh, some of the biggest failures that you discuss in your book when it comes to the international response to Haiti's disasters. I, we've talked upon, uh, talked about some of them um, briefly earlier, but would love to see if you could give us an insight into a few more of those. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, you know, when we talk about reconstruction and aid and stuff after a disaster, right, we're often um, sort of really focused on the individual projects that go wrong, right? These instances of waste, of fraud, of abuse, right? Contractors getting money and not spending it right. And I think, you know, these are really important things. And I can get into some specific examples from that, right? But I think, you know, really what I'm trying to get across with this book, and I think is the sort of bigger picture of all of that, right? That those little things, that's not the end of the problem, right? That's not where it's confined. But what are the longer impacts of bypassing the government and local organizations and reducing local capacity, right? Of, you know, de-linking uh, these things from the government and from the Haitian people, because when it's foreigners who are in control of these projects, they're not accountable to the Haitian people, right? And so what does that mean for a nation's democracy over the longer term, right? It's these sort of bigger things that I think are really the most damning legacy of the post-quake reconstruction period. That said, there are some I think specific examples that do get at some of these bigger issues. And I think for me, the, the biggest one is housing in general, right? Um, again, more than a million people displaced, hundreds of thousands of homes destroyed. And part of the effort after the earthquake was saying, hey, if we do this right, you know, we can create whole new industries. We source things locally, right? We build up local construction firms. This can have a knock-on effect and really have a positive impact on the country. That's the exact opposite of what ended up happening, right? And so, you know, these grand plans, I, I focus a lot in the book on USAID's signature housing program after the earthquake, which started with a plan to build like 50,000 houses for, you know, low amount of money using all local materials. Uh, and it ended up being about 900 houses. They cost about 10 times more than they had initially set out. And almost all of the material was imported. How did how did that even happen? How do you go from those fifty thousand to nine hundred, and it's such a change? I mean, how does that even happen? Yeah, well, so there's a few big things. I mean, one is, you know, you can come up with any plan you want, but once you put it into the sort of aid contracting world, right? 
it, it goes into a black box. And what are the firms that can actually win a competitive bid from USAID, given all the restrictions and legal requirements that are put into that system, right? It's designed to help American firms. It's not designed for development in, in other countries, right? That's not the foreign aid system that we've built. But it's just not, right? We've crafted laws and regulations that make it really hard for people who might want to do the right thing to actually do that, right? And then the other piece is that almost all the time, politics gets in the way, right? And so instead of providing homes for earthquake victims, right, from those displaced for the earthquake, the housing program instead was transitioned to provide housing for new workers at an industrial park, a six hour drive north from the capital, because that was the flagship reconstruction project and providing free housing was a condition for that company to come into Haiti in the first place. And that's what donors really wanted, right? So the housing became a carrot to lure a foreign company into Haiti and not an actual program to address something that had just been caused by this you know, devastating disaster. And specifically with the contract that went to build those houses, it went to a childhood friend of former president Michel Martelly, the president of Haiti, right? And, you know, it was pretty clearly seen as a deal that would be good for him. And ended up benefiting a lot of people in the United States as well, right? And so I sort of traced that project from its origins of a, you know, a sort of idealistic plan by housing experts and engineers to its end result, right? Uh, you know, and, and there's a lot more in there, um, you know, possible criminal investigations, evidence of companies using substandard concrete to save money and then distributing that money amongst the different companies. And the end result is that the signature post-quake housing program was not built to withstand an earthquake. Oh my goodness, that's just so frustrating. But I mean, what a what a tragedy, right? What a tragedy for the Haitian people um, that uh, obviously are deserving of of all of these programs and all of these um, all of this aid that's supposed to be heading their way. Um, I wonder, Jake, is it is there something specific to? I know we've talked a little bit about the history, but Haiti um, seems to stand out so much um, in terms of the challenges um, and also the failures of the processes and the aid and all of these different things. What is it about Haiti that uh, seems to just we seem to fail any time we try to help, any time we try to do anything. Yeah, and so I, you know, I think I'd flip it around, right? It's not about Haiti for me, right? I don't think Haiti is the issue here or the unique part, right? And I think if there's one thing to to take away from the book, right, it's 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 easy to look at Haiti and say, oh, this is a failed state, everything is doing to fail. Okay, okay, right? And the the title of the book is Aid State for a reason, right? It is a pushback to this idea of a failed state, and it's about taking a look at why these things actually fail, right? And who is ultimately responsible for those failures. And I think there's an important lesson here, right? Because we're, if we've got the purse strings in the US, if we're spending the money, uh, we gotta take a look in the mirror and figure out what we can fix here that is gonna make us actually be able to provide valuable support, as opposed to saying, oh, everything's gonna fail, it's, it's the problems in Haiti, right? Because the reality is we've built these systems and they're not designed to help Haiti, they're designed to help us, right? And until we realize that and actually try and reform those systems, Right, we're going to continue making these same mistakes over and over and over again. Hmm, I like that. It's a it's a great way to take a look at it. Okay, so I know that after this whole conversation, a lot of folks might be feeling a little down. Um, 
on the current situation. Um, there's a lot of, as we've mentioned, chaos, violence. There's a lot of people in need, a lot of people that need help. Is there any hope um, that we can turn things around? Um, either the Haitian people themselves can turn it around, that we can provide any help from the U.S. How, how do we make Haiti uh, continue to be a beacon for hope and a beautiful, incredible place for its residents? Yeah, exactly. When I think, you know, we have to always keep in mind what the Haitian people have accomplished in their history, right? These are people who can change the world, right? Who can change their system, who can change, you know, their environment, right? And I think we have to always have optimism that that's going to be the case. And I think there are very specific reasons why we can still keep that optimism alive today, despite how, you know, terrible the situation truly is on the ground right now. And I think, you know, there's a few things. So one for me, right, I've talked about this concept of an aid state and the unsustainable status quo that was being propped up for so many decades in Haiti. So for me, right, you know, I think failed state is a, is a sort of a misnomer in this. It's not a, an appropriate term, but that's not to say that the state is not failing, right? The state is barely existing, right? And I think that actually presents an opportunity, right? Uh, Haitians want something different. They want a rupture with the past. They don't want to just go back to the way it was a few years ago, right? That was not working. Uh, and so this is an opportunity. In order to move forward, you know, I think we should see the collapse of the aid state as something that opens the door to the systemic change that the Haitian people so clearly want and so clearly deserve, right? That's one. And two, I think, you know, we often lose sight amidst the violence and insecurity and the headlines and these things about the amazing organizing that's happening in Haiti against impossible odds, right? And, and it's happening at the local level, it's happening at the national level, it's happening in the capital, it's happening all over. People are coming together, communities are coming together, they're coming together to survive, they're coming together to try and build something new, right? And we've seen this for years in Haiti, this has been happening. And I think in many ways, right, what you're seeing today, this violence is in some ways a response to that organizing, right? It's a response to the success of the Haitian people trying to build something different is that that threatened a lot of really powerful actors in Haiti, actors who've traditionally held all of that power and don't want to let it go, right? And they're fighting to continue that system. So for us, right, as outsiders, as, as the United States, right, where I, I work, right, is how can we help that? How can we change that dynamic? Well, right, the question's often framed like, should we intervene or not, right? And I think, again, this is sort of misses the mark. We are intervening. We're intervening every day in Haiti, right? The, the government would not be there without our political support. We have to realize that our thumb is already on the scale, right? We need to take it off the scale and let Haitians actually determine their own future, right? That's the key. And I think that's what the U.S. first and foremost can begin to do to help the situation. Jake Johnston, Senior Research Associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. His new book out now is called Aid State, Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism, and the Battle to Control Haiti. Jake, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the new book. Thanks so much for having me. You can find hundreds of other exceptional experts by visiting roly.ai and connect with us on social media. I'm Catalina Villegas. Until next time.